0: Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign. And we cannot deny it, but to stop the thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old.
1: So, here we have it. Our Bible reading starts at that moment of extreme tension between Peter and John and the Sadducees, the chief priests, the leaders and rulers of the temple. Peter and John, in the name of Jesus Christ, have healed this 40-year-old man crippled since birth and have started preaching to the astonished onlookers About their journey with Jesus, their witness of his death and his resurrection, and the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. Now, our study of Acts chapter 3 last Sunday touched upon this miraculous healing. Uh, The crippled man who'd been placed on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem by his friends every day to enable him to beg for money from those visiting the temple and many of the crowd watching will have regularly walked past this crippled man not paid much attention he was after all just another beggar and this man was looking for some kind of financial help which would have been a very real need in his life but there was also a far deeper need a need of physical healing And yet further down, within his soul, there was an even deeper need. A need for him to know the Lord. So Peter says to him, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And Peter at that point is speaking to his deepest need. And like the beggar, we all have uh, very real and important primary needs. We need money to pay bills. We need food to uh, keep our bodies working. We need work to keep us occupied. Uh, We need housing to keep a roof over ourselves rather than sleeping out rough. Yet our focus on these needs can sometimes cloud a far deeper, far more vital need. The Lord himself. Our expectations can end up being Far lower than what the Lord can provide in giving His presence and His grace to us. So Peter helps the man up, led him to his feet, and the man began jumping and praising God. In Acts chapter 3, verse 8, it says, What a moment! The people saw the power of complete and total healing in this man's life, and it says they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And then this is the moment that Peter finds his true voice. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, he starts preaching the news of Christ's resurrection to the crowds, to the onlookers. And so now we reach the point of today's Bible reading where it started. And of course, naturally, Peter and John have attracted the attention of the temple guards, the priests and the Sadducees, and they're not happy with the situation. Now, just to understand uh, the position these rulers held, you have the elders, teachers of the law, they made up this Jewish council. It consisted of 17 members, Sadducees, Pharisees, the priests plus the current high priest who presided over the group. The Sadducees held a majority in this ruling group. Uh, They were really the wealthy, intellectual, powerful men of Jerusalem. But the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they were the religious leaders who stood to gain financially by cooperating with the Romans. And of course it was this same council that had earlier condemned Jesus to death. Anas the high priest, uh, he'd been deposed by the Romans uh, prior to this point, and they had appointed Caiaphas as the high priest in his place. But incidentally, Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Anas. So keeping it in the family, sort of. But because the Jews considered the office of high priest as a lifetime appointment, they would still call Anas by the title of high priest And still give him respect and authority within the council. So it's these Jewish leaders who make up the Sanhedrin, and they're meant to be the ones in charge of what goes on in the temple. Now they thought they'd earlier dealt with this Jesus problem as they saw it by arranging to have him put to death. And not only that, they'd ensured that his tomb was properly sealed and guarded. And if you look at, I think it's in Matthew's Gospel, they subsequently had to bribe the guards when they reported back that the the body had gone missing. So they had to bribe the guards to give them a substantial sum of money to say, don't say the body's gone, just say, you fell asleep in the middle of the night and the disciples came and stole the body away. Because we don't want this news about the resurrection getting out. Can't have that. And now to their consternation... In front of their very eyes, two uneducated fishermen are performing the same kind of miracles in the name of apparently resurrected Jesus. Not only that, but thousands and thousands of Jewish men are hearing them preach and are converting from Judaism to become followers of of Christ, the first Christians. So at this point, the Jewish leaders are beginning to get these strange feelings of deja vu. They think, we've seen and heard this before, surely. They start to recall it was only a relatively short time ago when this Jesus fellow had stormed into the temple after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He'd kicked over the money changers' tables. He'd released all their doves and animals that were being sold to worshippers at very high prices to use for sacrifices. And then he laid into the chief priests and teachers of the law for turning his house of prayer into a den of robbers. And it's at this point that the chief priests and leaders remember that Jesus started preaching to the crowds and miraculously healing The blind and the lame, it says in Matthew chapter 21. So now we fast forward a bit, and in front of their noses, the chief priests, Jewish leaders, they're seeing Peter and John performing similar kinds of miracles, preaching in the name of this resurrected Jesus. So they start to question themselves. What is going on? Why do these events keep happening? In Matthew 23, Jesus exposed the hypocritical attitudes of the religious leaders, because they did not practise what they preached. I mean, they knew the scriptures, but they did not live by them. They didn't care about being holy, as long as they looked holy, because that way they would receive people's admiration and praise. You see, being a religious leader in Jerusalem is very different to being, say, for example, a pastor in a modern-day secular society. Israel's culture, its history, its daily life centred around its relationship with God. And the religious leaders were the best known, most powerful and most respected of all leaders. They would sit at the best seats, at the best banquets. They would eat the best food. They expected people to bow to them and call them rabbi as a sign of their self exalted status. They made big pretenses of outward shows of holiness, but at the same time, they were empty within. Of course, Jesus, who is true, saw through all their pompousness, their pretenses of holiness. He saw what was truly in their hearts. And when you go back to read Matthew 23 in it, I always like reading Matthew 23 because it gives me a slight glowing feeling when really Jesus lays into these leaders and he publicly shames them. He lambasts them for uh, the way they are basically going on with their life. He calls them... Hypocrites, blind men or blind guides, a bunch of snakes or a brood of vipers. He said that they had neglected the more important matters of law, of justice, of mercy and faithfulness. And in a classic example of hyperbole, and Jesus used this quite a lot to, to make a point, he said they would strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel, which I think is lovely. And in fact, the Pharisees used to strain their drinks because they believed, obviously, they had to be clean within, let alone clean on the outside. So they didn't want any unclean item within their drinks. So they would strain their liquids. And if a fly or a gnat got in, obviously, they could strain it out so that they only consumed what they regarded as clean fluids. But of course Jesus is saying, you know, you'd go to the lengths of this minute detail of straining out of the mat, but in the meantime you've swallowed a camel. <laughs> a camel also would be an unclean animal. And so when this group of religious leaders sent Jesus to die, they thought, problem solved. After all, killing a man does tend to prevent them causing you any more problem, doesn't it? and any movements around a charismatic person, they tend to disappear once that person is dead. But here, a short while later, the religious leaders are faced with Peter and John, leading a growing movement, preaching and healing through the name of the same Jesus Christ, the one that they'd put to death. And the response as we find in Acts chapter 4, shows they are confused. They say, what are we going to do with these men? So they throw them into prison overnight while they think about the position and while they try and work out what to do. And Like many politicians today that have to deal with problems all the time, they find that there are very few ways of actually dealing with the problem. I won't mention any names at the moment. <laughs> you can always work out that one yourself. Uh, they can't bribe Peter and John, that clearly won't work. They dare not put them on trial or arrange for them to be killed as the crowds are likely to riot. So the Jewish leaders are fresh out of ideas. Now if you're a ruler in an ancient undemocratic society, normally paying people off or killing them is usually the solution. But the ruling council then resorts to their backup plan. So they try and order them around, threaten them, intimidate them, hope they're scared into keeping quiet. But if they'd hoped Peter and John would be scared into silence, they've no idea what kind of men they're now dealing with. For these are not the same people that they were before. In the Gospels, prior to Jesus' death, we tend to see Peter, don't we, as a, a rather impetuous character, a bit brash, certainly enthusiastic, tendency to act first without thinking things through. But most importantly, when it came to the crunch, when Peter needed to stand up for Christ, he completely failed him. After they came to arrest Jesus, Peter ran away. And when Jesus was being held prisoner and facing death, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. Peter talked a good talk. And when the going seemed good, he was keen and enthusiastic. But when things turned bad, he failed the real test of commitment and loyalty. Peter sought to save himself before standing up for his dear friend, Jesus. But Jesus never gave up on Peter, not after the resurrection, not on the cross. Jesus' words on the cross, he said, forgive them, Lord, they do not know what they do. And I wonder, was that also meant for Peter? He hadn't killed Jesus, but he'd gone back on the commitment he'd promised to his friend. Indeed, it's often our friends abandoning us that hurts us more than our enemies actively trying to harm us. So after the resurrection, Jesus practiced exactly what he preached during his ministry. He forgives Peter and restores him to a position of trust by challenging him to raise himself up through taking responsibility for Jesus' followers the way that he, had. he says this, he says, Peter, take care of my sheep. Jesus knew Peter's potential despite the weakness and frailty in his personality. But in total difference to the Jewish high council, Jesus does not seek to lead by ordering or threatening people or just with an outward show but as a true leader, one who shows the example of integrity, compassion, sacrifice, and so inspires people to choose to follow after him. And of course this doesn't just apply to Peter. The same love Jesus had for Peter is the love he has for every one of us, every day. He doesn't wish to hold our sins against us. He's taken our sins away by his atonement on the cross. And neither does Jesus want us to hold on to our shame, our guilt, our fear. So every day Jesus holds out his hand to each of us and says, follow me. Rise up to the challenge. Be a little more like the person your best moments show that you can be. Follow me. Not on your own, because you'll never be on your own, but with God's help and with grace and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and his unfailing love. And so Peter stood up a bit taller allowed himself to be inspired to rise to the challenge, to take responsibility for that community that he had around him. So now, standing before the same council that condemned Jesus and being threatened, being commanded, and with genuine reason for fear of their own lives, this time, Peter is different. He's certain, he's clear Now he may have felt fear inside, I mean they are human after all, but their conviction was so great that it overwhelmed their fear. So they stood utterly solid, their heads were held high, their backs were straight, and they spoke the simple and utter truth. No embellishment, no beating around the bush, just the plain truth. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, it records what happened. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel... It is by the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And that quote comes from the psalm, Psalm 118, verse 22. And he goes on, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And in verse 20 Peter continues by saying, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And the ruling Jewish council can't believe it. In verse 13 they say, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were uneducated, ordinary men, they were astonished. Astonished. But why were they astonished? You might need all sorts of university degrees, training in rhetoric, in debating, in trying to come up with complex justifications for things that probably really shouldn't be justified, but it doesn't require any kind of training to speak the plain truth about what you've seen and heard and nothing more. Peter and John challenge the mistaken thinking of the priests and Jewish leaders who tried to effectively elevate themselves above God. And in verse 19, Peter and John say, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? And they throw it back at them. You be the judges, they say to the leaders. So they were being challenged by two uneducated fishermen as to why they were preventing people from truly worshipping God. Just as Jesus had done when he repeatedly called the Pharisees and teachers of the law a bunch of snakes and a bunch of hypocrites. Jesus' death on the cross was the start of the new covenant. Now all mankind had the potential of hope from a resurrection after death through the saving grace of Jesus. No need anymore for expensive temple sacrifices. God, through Jesus, had paid the ultimate price of the final sacrifice to bring us back into a loving relationship with him. Jesus talked about the wise man who built his house upon the rock the rain came down, we all know the story. The waters rose up, the winds blew and beat against the house, but it did not fall down because its foundations were deep in that solid rock. And on this occasion, Peter and John were those wise men that day because they had seen and heard the truth that Jesus is risen. They set their foundations, their words, in the deep and solid rock of Jesus, the cornerstone upon which their faith rested, and ours can also rest firm, safe in the knowledge that it will not move. Yes, they might have still felt fear, (coughs) they might have worried about the threats, but why should they really be afraid because knowing what they knew All the High Council could do was threaten their bodies with physical violence to beat them or possibly even kill them. But what do those threats mean to men who've seen the Lord pass from death to life again and know that he's gone on to prepare a place for them? And this is true in their speech. It's clear, it's direct, it's honest. No need to embellish, no need to circle around. What more needs adding? There's an old hymn that we don't sing much these days, but it says stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory his army he shall lead till evil is defeated and Christ is Lord indeed. God's holy spirit and the truth of the resurrected Jesus give us power to speak boldly. Therefore, God is calling each one of us to put on our gospel armour, to keep watch with constant prayer, and where duty or danger calls, to be never failing there. Lord, give us the courage to speak truth to power. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for dying for us and taking the punishment that we deserve. Father God, please help us when we want to tell the whole world about you, but we know that sometimes we just don't feel adequate enough. Perhaps we just freeze up or we get tongue-tied. Perhaps sometimes we're lost for words we feel we are letting you down by not saying anything about you and remaining silent when we should be lifting you up and telling everyone we meet about the message of salvation by grace through faith. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we've attempted to exalt ourselves above you instead of humbling ourselves and willingly serving others. Give us courage, we pray, to open our mouths and speak the truth to those whom we encounter. Release our tongues and allow us to speak freely from our hearts to your praise and glory. Lord, we know that without you we can do nothing. But we also believe that we can do all things through Christ who gives us the strength and courage. So use our lives, we pray, and give us the courage to be good and faithful witnesses for you, in word and in deed, to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.